On today's episode, I'll be discussing a couple of films featuring a character some affectionately refer to as the Man of Tomorrow, starting with Superman Returns from 2006 and Man of Steel from 2013. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Today on the show, like I said, we've got some Superman movies that I really want to talk about. But first, I wanted to talk about Superman 3 and Superman 4 a little bit. I don't think I'll ever do episodes on these movies because... My two favorite bad movie podcasts, How Did This Get Made and We Hate Movies, have already done episodes on these, and I feel like I would just be rehashing what they've already done, and I don't really want to do that. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about them as opposed to giving them a full-blown episode. So Superman 3, this is easily one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Directed by Richard Lester, who was notable in that he made comedies like A Hard Day's Night featuring the Beatles. He actually took over directing Superman 2 when the executive producers Alexander and Ilya Salkind fired Richard Donner for a myriad of reasons, presumably including spending too much money. When Richard Lester took over on Superman 2, he had to reshoot scenes that were already filmed, as well as filming brand new scenes so that he could actually get full directing credit. Although his scenes were not completely terrible in that movie, his finished product was vastly inferior to the Richard Donner cut that would be released around the same time that Superman Returns was hitting theaters. So the Salkinds kept Lester on for Superman 3, and that movie is just fucking terrible. We've got Gus, played by Richard Pryor, who has no business getting this big a role in anything, let alone a Superman movie. Gus is supposedly a computer genius, despite seemingly not knowing how he does any of his computer stuff. Like, he just does it by accident, it seems. The plot of the movie is truly awful. At certain points, Gus teams up with the villain Webster, played by Robert Vaughn, and he wants to control the weather so that he can hold sway over the price of coffee or something. At one point, they create some kryptonite in a lab, and when Gus is creating the kryptonite, he can't figure out what one of the ingredients is, so he puts in tar, and they present it to Superman, but it seemingly has no initial effect on him. But ultimately, it actually turns Superman into a careless dickhead, and we get a lot of him going around and doing stuff like blowing out the torch at the Olympics or straightening the Leaning Tower of Pisa, Obviously some real fucking monstrous shit. There's some unpleasant vibes in this one scene with him and Lana Lang, his high school crush, where Superman ignores this call for help and the whole vibe of the scene is just super rapey and I don't like it. After we see bad Superman at a bar drinking and flicking peanuts at the bottles behind the bar and smashing them, he seems like he's just had enough. So he goes to a junkyard and divides into good Clark Kent and bad Superman, and they have a big brawl, which is a cool idea, 
but it's also terribly executed. Ultimately, Clark wins, and it's pretty anticlimactic. And ultimately, there are just a ton of stupid sequences in the movie that don't make any sense, and a lot of the ideas in the writing were laughably bad, in my opinion. And then we have Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, and this is easily one of the worst movies I've ever seen also. The film was made after Canon Films bought out the rights to the franchise, and they were notable in that they made notoriously bad movies, skimped on budget, cut corners, and often threw storytelling out the window with their movies. Lenny Luther, who is Lex Luthor's nephew, is an awful character, and he's played by John Cryer, and his overall performance in this movie is truly the worst thing of all time. He does this awful fucking voice, and he just sounds like a total dipshit. He's like, oh no, whoa, Uncle X, why? And it's like, that's what you're going with? You you gotta have him have a dumb voice? I mean, he's gotta be a dipshit, I guess, because that's what they wrote him as, but... Man, he did not have to fucking talk like that. No one in this movie feels like they want to be here. I can't even believe that Gene Hackman agreed to come back as Lex Luthor. And I also hate that they brought Lex Luthor back as the villain with all of the other options that they have available. It's like, come the fuck on. It's not all Lex Luthor. Apparently, Christopher Reeve had a lot of creative input in the original story. And the rumor is that a full cut of the movie exists unreleased somewhere that was well-received by test audiences, but they thought it would be a good idea to slash what must have been, like, over two hours, and they cut it down to, like, 90 minutes. The villain, the main villain other than Lex Luthor, is Nuclear Man. Why have this be a villain? Why? I don't know if he's from the comics or not, but he's a fucking stupid villain. And why cast someone unknown who you're just gonna dub over with Gene Hackman's voice? Nuclear Man has some big fingernails, and he uses them to scratch Superman at times, and it's just a very uninspired villain idea. This feels like the product of people making the kinds of movies that they don't personally like. Like, I don't think that the people that made this movie like Superman-type movies, and it really shows through. For instance, if I were a director and I was asked to direct a musical it'd probably really show through that I don't care for musicals or typically get them, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, basically, that's just kind of the brief rundown of those two movies. I don't really have a ton more to dive into because that would be like really getting into the plots, and I don't want to do that. So I guess we'll start with Superman Returns, released on June 30th, 2006, based on DC Comics characters and stories originally developed by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. This movie was directed by Brian Singer, who is known for doing The Usual Suspects, which is a solid movie, definitely one that I go back and revisit every so often. He did three X-Men movies, starting with the first X-Men movie, X-Men, from 2000, and then he did the sequel to that movie, which is called X2, X-Men United. Then he also did one that was called X-Men Days of Future Past, and that one's also solid, honestly, Brian Singer's X-Men movies are probably the best X-Men movies that are out there. And then he also did Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a Freddie Mercury biopic. Obviously, he was the lead singer of Queen, and he's portrayed by Rami Malek. And Rami Malek did an amazing job. He really looked the part. He definitely did a good job. As far as I know, he did the singing for the movie, and that's huge. And honestly... The movie is great, but it's really just 
better for listening to the music that they have in it. It's fucking great. For the writers, we have Michael Doherty and Dan Harris. For the producers, we have John Peters and Gilbert Adler. For the score, we have composer John Ottman. He utilized and re-recorded John Williams' original Superman theme to incorporate into the movie's score, and it does kind of add a little something to it, given that it's such a familiar score and it's so well done because it's fucking John Williams of all people. For the cast, we have Brandon Routh, who plays Clark Kent slash Superman, and he was in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. He had a very small part in that movie, and that was actually after Superman Returns came out, so you can just kind of see that as an indicator of the trajectory that his career took after this movie. And he was also in Zack and Miri Make a Porno, which I feel like I need to revisit because I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't remember being overly impressed with it, but I still kind of liked it. Then we have Kate Bosworth, who plays Lois Lane, and she was in Remember the Titans, and I honestly don't remember her from that movie at all, but I haven't seen it in a long time. But I definitely remember Denzel Washington, Ryan Gosling, and Hayden Panettiere, and honestly, yeah, it's. I remember it being a good movie. It's just I don't remember Kate Bosworth in it at all. She was also in the movie 21, which I haven't seen in years. And I seem to remember thinking it was okay. Nothing to write home about, but it's also got Kevin Spacey in it. And it's about these kids that go and they basically, I think, try and cheat their way into winning blackjack. And they obviously almost get caught and things like that. Then we have James Marsden, who plays Richard White, and he's known for being the guy that girls tend to spurn in order to be with a more likable main character type. He's usually a secondary, he's a supporting actor in a lot of things. He was in The Notebook, which is the quintessential getting spurned for another guy movie for him. It's basically like Rachel McAdams wants to leave him for Ryan Gosling's character, And honestly, that movie is not that good. I don't care what people say. I mean, a lot of people tell me, they're like, yeah, man, I know it's a chick flick, but I really like that one. He was also in the X-Men movies. I think it's just the first three for him. I don't know if he ever appeared in any of the later X-Men movies, but definitely X-Men 1 through 3, he was there. Then we have Kevin Spacey, who plays Lex Luthor, and he was in The Usual Suspects, and the connective tissue is very strong with this movie and Superman Returns. I mean, there are a ton of cast and crew members that are the same across both movies. He was in L.A. Confidential, which honestly, I have to just say I recommend this movie and check it out because I've talked about it before. I honestly can't recommend it enough. He was in American Beauty, and I still need to go back and revisit that because obviously with the allegations against Kevin Spacey, it might color my perception of the movie. I don't know that for sure. I just have this gut feeling that I'm not going to be as big of a fan of it as I used to be. And he was in Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, and this is a David Fincher movie. I've talked about it before. Definitely check it out if you haven't. Revisit it if you haven't revisited it in a long time, because it's so fucking good. Then we have Frank Langella, who plays Perry White, and he was in a movie called Eddie, and he plays this new owner of the New York Knicks, and the Knicks are failing, and they're not making the playoffs, they're not doing well at all, and they're losing all of these games. And at a game, he sees Whoopi Goldberg in the stands, 
who is like this Knicks super fan, and she's yelling at the team and all this stuff. And so Frank Langella's character decides to like set the wheels in motion to make her the new coach. And it's basically like, come the fuck on. Like, I mean, it's a ridiculous movie, but I loved it when I was younger because I used to really love sports, which I don't really anymore. But it's definitely about sports and definitely basketball for sure. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I used to really like it and it doesn't really hold up very well for me, but it's still one that I remember. He was also in Frost Nixon, which I've only seen the beginning of. I couldn't really get into it. He plays Nixon, I believe, and he does a good job with the voice, but I don't think he really looks the part at all. And then he was also in Good Night and Good Luck, and that's got a ton of good people in it. I really like that one. I haven't rewatched in a while. I need to go back and do that at some point. And last but not least, we have Eva Marie Saint, who plays Martha Kent. And she was in On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. And that one is a solid one. It's got a lot of great scenes, and it's a very well-made movie. It's a classic. It's black and white. So, I mean, if you're not into the black and white thing, I don't understand you. But, but I mean, I also understand that that's why you're not watching this movie. And she was also in North by Northwest, previously covered on this podcast. And that's an Alfred Hitchcock movie with Cary Grant. And I really like it a lot. I mean, I talked about it. Go check out that episode if you get a chance. It's very good. For casting notes, Marlon Brando appears as Superman's father, Jor-El, through unused footage originally meant for Superman 2 from 1980, combined with CGI. When Singer was hired to make this movie, he dropped out of the production of X-Men The Last Stand, which is the third X-Men movie. Jim Caviezel expressed interest in the title role, but it seemed that Brian Singer was dead set on casting an unknown actor in the part. Brandon Routh was chosen from thousands of candidates, auditioned by way of casting calls. Routh had previously auditioned for the role of Clark Kent in the TV series Smallville, but lost out to Tom Welling. Henry Cavill, Glenn Howerton, and Chris Pratt all auditioned for the title role. And if you don't know who those guys are, Henry Cavill is the guy that would go on to become Superman and Man of Steel when they rebooted the franchise. Glenn Howerton is actually... Dennis from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and that's a great show, definitely worth checking out. And Chris Pratt is actually the guy who plays Star-Lord in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and the other Marvel movies, and he was also on the show Parks and Rec, and his character Andy Dwyer was fucking hysterical. I really love that show. The script was written with only Kevin Spacey in mind for the part of Lex Luthor, given his friendship with the director. No other actors were even discussed, which is a crying shame because there were probably a ton of actors that would have been great in this part, and I don't know that Kevin Spacey is the be-all, end-all Lex Luthor, obviously. Claire Danes, Carrie Russell, and Amy Adams were all considered for or auditioned for the role of Lois Lane. Kate Bosworth reportedly studied Katherine Hepburn's performances in The Philadelphia Story, previously covered on this podcast, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner?, to prepare for the role, which is shocking to me. You could watch those movies, and I don't feel like the Katherine Hepburn energy really comes through in Bosworth's performance at all. I would never have guessed that she took inspiration from those two movies or even Katherine Hepburn at all. Hugh Laurie was cast first in the role of Perry White. However, the popularity of his television show, House, caused schedule conflicts. 
Frank Langella was then cast. For the plot synopsis, after a five-year absence, Superman comes back to the city of Metropolis and must again face his nemesis, Lex Luthor, who has managed to be released from prison. For the tagline, we have, On June 30th, 2006, look up in the sky. And that's just truly god-awful. That's a very bad tagline. What the fuck are you thinking? Alright guys, let's just dive right into the plot of this fucking movie. So, I must say, right off the bat, with these studio logos, they're kind of fucking obnoxious. Warner Brothers, Legendary, DC Comics, they all have these really loud sound effects that I can't really handle. The pre-movie thing that comes up says, On the doomed planet Krypton, a wise scientist placed his infant son into a spacecraft and launched him to Earth. Raised by a kind farmer and his wife, the boy grew up to become our greatest protector, Superman. But when astronomers discovered the distant remains of his home world, Superman disappeared. And honestly, it's not a bad setup, and I think with some rewrites and fixes, we could possibly have a hit on our hands, honestly. But also, why is that whole thing like 90% explaining shit that 99% of audiences already know Do you really need to be spoon-fed the origin of Superman in this little paragraph that comes up? I don't think so. But you know what would be truly weird is if he still turned out to have a cousin or other relatives on Earth later that just hadn't surfaced yet, and he was, like, kind of marketed as the last sole survivor of the planet Krypton, but he really wasn't. I love the imitation John Williams score because I can't not love it, you see. A little bit of trivia on that, in an interview on Larry King Live, Brian Singer said that had he not had access to John Williams' original music, he would not have done the film. Jor-El, as played by Marlon Brando, is saying kind words of motivation to his son as he goes on his way, so I guess we get a pretty decent 2006 effect showing Krypton exploding and all the remnants of the planet floating away. These opening credits with the John Williams theme are at least significantly cooler and more imaginative than the originals, since those just kind of took place in the empty void of space for the most part. But yeah, the effects are definitely of their time, which is too bad. They just hadn't gotten where they needed to be yet, and this movie goes all in on them. The credits end, and we get the scene I always forget about— This sick old woman on her deathbed is telling some man that she believes he is good and she has decided to help him after him getting out of prison. The family is pounding on the door outside trying to get inside to interrupt this nonsense and presumably they just know what's going on and they know what's going to happen. Spoiler alert, the man is all-around great guy Lex Luthor portrayed by all-around great guy Kevin Spacey. The old lady kicks the bucket and Lex goes on his way. He sees an angry family outside and reveals he has inherited all of this lady's stuff, I guess. That's what we're to gather, at least. But, like, who are these people who would buy whatever bullshit Lex Luthor is selling them? But I guess my grandma, who I loved very much and still do, was a Kevin Trudeau supporter, so, I mean, I guess nothing's impossible. But this lady also shunned her whole family, who is telling her not to do it, too. And it's like, really, you love Lex Luthor more than your own family? I would have much rather seen Lex just breaking out of prison and just getting some throwaway explanation of why he's rich again, like that he had a Swiss bank account or money tucked away somewhere. 
Now we're on the Kent farm, and Eva Marie Saint as Martha Kent looks a little more aged than the last thing I saw her in, which was on the waterfront, because she was like 30 and on the waterfront and about 81 when this movie premiered. Also, sorry about the Martha, Batman vs. Superman really etched typing Martha in all caps into my brain. Fun fact, workers constructed 4.35 miles of road and planted 37 acres of corn to recreate the Kent farm. This is especially a difficult task in that the farm was created during a seven-year drought in Australia, and it almost seems like maybe you shouldn't replicate it in Australia then. Why would you be dead set on doing some shit like that? Doesn't make any fucking sense. She's doing dishes, and a doggo is laying on the floor of the kitchen, and the radio she's listening to gets a little interference, and the earth starts shaking violently. What could it be? She sees what appears to be a meteor, almost becoming a meteorite, outside, so she drives out to investigate. There is wreckage of a ship or something, and Superman touches her to alert her to his presence. He's in a gray suit with a black chest emblem, and it's pretty fucking sweet, except for the no cape thing, but it works anyway. Wait, am I to gather that Superman had to travel by ship to and from where he went? I mean... I guess it would make sense because Krypton has a red sun and Superman wouldn't have any powers there, but it's like, how did he come by the spacecraft? Like, how did he make this work? Because Krypton is farther than anywhere that you could possibly go in modern spacecrafts. I mean, honestly, I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it. Now we're on some yacht of Lex's where he's talking to Kitty Kowalski, who is this movie's version of Miss Teschmacher. She's played admirably by the immensely talented Parker Posey. She has to inform Lex that he's not a god, and he says something about gods flying around in little red capes and not sharing their powers. I don't think Lex would really allude to Superman being a god, personally. He'd definitely think of himself as one, though, I think. But not Superman. He does not think that highly of Superman. One of Lex's men tells him he's found something, and they head straight to what I guess is the Fortress of Solitude, but darker because this movie kind of went all in on that color scheme. I will say, despite Kevin Spacey's alleged sexual misconduct allegations, he was a solid choice at face value for Lex in 2006. This fortress does look pretty cool, to be honest. Naturally, Lex wants to see what the crystals and stuff in there can do. This is actually pretty reminiscent of Superman 2. In both the theatrical cut and the Donner cut, Lex does this with just him and Eve, where he escapes prison and goes right to the fortress. Lex activates something and Jarrell starts talking to him. I find it interesting that with all the futuristic Kryptonian technology, they haven't quite gotten to facial recognition somehow. It just seems like that'd be a given. It was a cool touch to use old footage of Marlon Brando for this, despite feeling like we really did need a full-on reboot of Superman and only getting a soft one with a bunch of in-references to the early Donner movies. I'll try and point these references out as they come. Sorry if I miss any, but there will be a lot of them, I promise. But that being said, I am so fucking tired of full origin stories in superhero movies. It's like, just fucking establish that they're a character and maybe do flashbacks or something. We're back at the Kent farm and Clark is running through the cornfields. And I always remember doing this as a kid and something with the leaves on the corn stalks would make my face sting after running through a lot of them. 
But I assume the Kryptonian DNA that keeps him from experiencing pain also prevents this. Again, imagery of what turns into young Clark running and jumping through the fields doesn't always look bad, but some of the CGI is very visible and noticeable to a person who has seen 2022 level effects, where you can watch a scene and not even know it's CGI until someone tells you. This won't be the first time I say this today, but I feel like they desperately needed better writing to give Clark slash Superman a personality, which is something that we're still yet to see since Reeve. I feel that Brandon Routh was capable of doing that and having a personality, but they didn't give him anything to work with at all. He's just a turd up there on screen, honestly. He's not really emoting much at all, and you want something unique and less generic in your Superman for my money. Martha tells Clark how devastating it was with him being gone five years, thinking that she'd never see him again. She asks him if he found anything in space, and he says no, the place was a graveyard. They exchange some kind words, but I feel like this is all we see of old Martha, unfortunately. Post-movie edit, we briefly see Martha once later, and I don't even think she talks, it's fucking nothing. Clark comes back to the Daily Planet after a five-year absence that I'm hoping this movie will give some awful explanation for, and I don't really remember hearing anything specifically, like maybe he was just on sabbatical for five years or something, I can't really make sense of it. He sees Jimmy Olsen as played by Sam Huntington, who was honestly a solid Jimmy choice for this flick. Jimmy goes to get something and Clark looks around at the crowded newspaper room with everyone running around and writing stories. Perry White, played by Frank Langella, coldly greets Clark and basically tells Clark he wouldn't have gotten the job if someone hadn't died, which it's like, okay, thanks pal, we worked for at least a couple of years together, and I feel like that meant something, but maybe not. You could have just pretended that that was how you felt and not been a total dick about it, but okay. I'm already remembering not liking what they did with Perry White. For all the emulating of the old movies, they could have really gone all in on a more Jackie Cooper-like actor or portrayal. Actually, with very few exceptions, this movie watered down most of the returning characters and really made them less likable in every way. Clark, Perry, Lois, Lex's friends, even Martha Kent are all just unenergetic and boring, and it's just a fucking crying shame. Any idiot could have easily pointed out these issues in this movie, and I always hate to blame the writers because it's not always them, but somebody needed to stand up for what was right here and just get some vibrant personalities on the page. Anyway, Jimmy awkwardly tries to help get Clark settled, but gets called away, and Clark makes it clear to the audience that he wants to see Lois. Fun fact about Lois Lane's portrayal in this film, Kate Bosworth was only 23 when she filmed this, and they don't go to great lengths to establish that she's older than that at all. So am I to assume that the events of Superman 1 and 2 had Margot Kidder playing At the oldest, an 18-year-old? Is that a fair assessment? I mean, Superman's been gone for five years. It would only make sense. Because Margot Kidder was almost 30 when she played the part, and I don't really know if I buy all that I'm supposed to with all the details that have to come with it. Clark sees Lois on the news, and she's on a jet doing a press conference or something. He goes to her desk and sees her Pulitzer Prize for the article she wrote called Why the World Doesn't Need Superman. Then, he sees a picture of her and another man and a child, and Jimmy shows up and explains to him that she's a mother now. Jimmy excitedly points out that the kid seems to take after his mom, mostly. 
But like, unless she was cheating on Clark, there's no way James Marsden believes that this is his kid, right? I refuse to fucking believe it. He would have to know. I mean, this has to be one of those things where she was already at least pregnant when she started dating him. Jimmy reveals to Clark that Lois is not married, but she is in a lengthy engagement and she doesn't like to talk about it. Lex is at this hideout of some sort and he's laying the groundwork for his evil plot. He's talking about how he could use Kryptonian technology to create land, which tracks with what I remember going on at the end of this movie. Clark and Jimmy go to a bar and Jimmy hypothesizes that Lois hasn't settled down because she's still in love with Superman. We're in person with Lois on the jet, and it's transporting some kind of space shuttle, but that's all I'll mention about that since this plane couldn't possibly play into any scenes going forward. Lex uses a crystal with this model town to show how he could create his own land or city or whatever, and the power goes out across town. But this looks more like an EMP since the plane and shuttle are affected, and yep, it's a fucking EMP. They might have actually already said that, but these notes aren't going to write themselves and I miss stuff sometimes, so lay the fuck off, man. The plane gets the power back and everything is back to normal, sort of. No worries, guys. I'm sure you were practically scared to death on that one. Cal Penn is with Lex and company, and if I remember my pre-movie readings, they actually cut down his part quite significantly from what it was originally supposed to be. Fun fact on that, in interviews, Cal Penn revealed he originally had a much greater role. It would have been revealed that his character was a disgraced former Daily Planet science reporter who was bribed by Lex Luthor to plant false evidence of Krypton's possible survival thus inspiring Superman to leave Earth and explore Krypton's ruins. This storyline was at least partially maintained in the video game based on the movie, but it's like, meh. This being in the movie would have really taken away from a super compelling plot and performances that defined an entire generation. Mission Control opts to cancel the shuttle launch due to the power outages and inherent risks potentially involved because of them. But when they try to abort, the boosters cannot be canceled for some reason, so the plan is just to take off but follow emergency landing procedures. The woman handling the press on the plane is downplaying the several issues that have come up in the last three minutes that everyone should be alarmed about for sure, realistically. The news about the shuttle breaks on TV and everyone is watching dumbfounded. And I gotta say, this is no shock. I love the John Williams scoring in this but the original incidental music is not great and leaves a lot to be desired. It just doesn't seem to have that John Williams spirit. I don't know. Clark goes out to suit up as the plane starts its unplanned descent to Earth with Lois on board. Lois sees Superman out the window of the plane and does zero emoting whatsoever. It's like she just doesn't even react to it. It's like, oh, well... I guess that's that superhero I haven't seen in five years and didn't expect to come back that I was romantically involved with on some level. There's a nice slow-mo shot of the plane in zero gravity as Superman helps the shuttle get off safely, then heads back to save the jet, which is plummeting to Earth. Everyone but Lois has their oxygen masks on because she's rebellious and carefree like that. What I do love is the more modern CGI gives us a chance to see Superman doing things we never have before, and those elements don't always look that bad to me. After snapping a wing off by accident, Superman comes around to the front of the plane and pushes on the nose, and he brings it safely to rest at this baseball field in a stadium, 
and rips off the door to see if everyone's alright. They clearly have him trying to emulate Christopher Reeve's voice when he's talking, and it just, it doesn't sound bad, it's just, it feels fake. But I think Routh played this character with a lack of confidence that ultimately doesn't manage to do the trick of replicating Reeve like they wanted. Lois gets out of her seat when she sees Superman, and there's complete silence on her part as he asks her if she's okay. We get this nod to the scene in Superman 1, where he has this little spiel about hoping one little crash landing doesn't put everyone off of flying, because statistically speaking, it's still the safest way to travel. In that scene, which is one of my favorite movie sequences ever, he rescues Lois from a helicopter that goes haywire. I don't love the Superman costume in this, really. It lacks imagination pretty bad, to be completely frank, and I wish it just would have been a little cooler. I mean, it'd be a killer Halloween costume for this purpose. It just kind of feels too cheap to be in this movie with this budget. More on that, milliskin, a type of cloth, was used as the material of Superman's suit. Unfortunately, this cloth restricts movement when new. Worse, it sags after being worn and becomes comfortable. As a result, 80 suits, 100 capes, 30 boots, and 90 belts were made. It's almost like you should just go with a better material if you can. It sounds like milliskin is not a great choice. Extra tidbit, when Tim Burton was attached to direct, the Superman costume was all dark blue, featuring a blood-red cape, and featured the classic S symbol in the form of daggers. Lois watches Superman leave, and of course she fucking faints onto the emergency slide for the jet, and I have still yet to have seen this happen in real life. I don't really buy that it happens this frequently. I've certainly never been in a scenario where I've just kind of passed out because I was so blown away by something. Back at the planet, Perry is asking everyone to find out all they can about Superman and where he's been and why he's been gone so long. He literally just says, Superman returns out loud as a headline and then dismisses everybody. Like, yeah, that's a pretty fucking great headline, Perry. How can everyone on screen be conveying such unenthusiastic demeanors at all times in this fucking movie? It's all we're seeing. Lois is writing more of a story on the power outage, and Perry says he wants to see her in his office because he wants to spread the word that the story is Superman, not the EMP. Naturally, Perry is a fucking idiot for this and doesn't recognize that this should at least be a part of the Superman story covering the EMP. Lois's fiancé comes to see her and has somehow lost their child, and we don't really see this fiancé's face just yet. The child comes and visits Clark, and I think we're to gather his name is Jason. I want to say maybe Richard says this when he's talking to them and saying he can't find him, but I, I thought for a while that he didn't get his name established until way into the fucking movie. The lost child comes and visits Clark, and I gotta know, why are we giving this kid an inhaler? Why must the child of Lois and Superman be an asthmatic? How does that make any fucking sense, and what's it doing for this story? This interaction between Clark and this child is displaying more excitement than any other scene so far, and this kid is conveying child actor levels of flatness and line delivery. Lois comes and finds the kid, and Lois is like, Oh, hey, Clark, so good to see you after five years. And she should also be like, Hey, it seems like I just saw someone else for the first time in five years, but their name and physical description escapes me, I guess. 
They have their little awkward cheek smooch greeting, and it's not comfortable on purpose. Brandon Routh's eyes also look violently and unrealistically blue because they're fake as shit contacts, and if what I've been told before is true, dark eye colors like brown are not easily converted with color contacts. Fun trivia about that, Brandon Routh has naturally brown eyes. Superman, on the other hand, has baby blue eyes. For his role, Routh had to wear blue contacts. When asked in an interview how they made his eyes blue, he said, blue prescription contacts, because I wear contacts myself, and they were a little bit infuriating because they were painted. There was white around them, and I would blink, and they'd shift. I think they've had to go and retouch some stuff, I'm sure. Lois introduces her boyfriend Richard, played by James Marsden, and he's playing his signature significant other about to be spurned for the main character part in this one. Maybe it's partially the way this movie feels like it was shot through a slightly dimming Instagram filter, but something makes it feel off and takes away from it feeling like you can really immerse yourself in it. We find out that Superman never even said goodbye to Lois before he left, and the whole going out to find remnants of Krypton story feels pretty fucking flimsy. I feel like I get wanting to find out if there's anything to be found out there, but at least say some goodbyes first and explain where you're going so people will understand that you're not there anymore. I remember in the video game, you actually did battle as Grey Suit Superman on some distant planet, and it was actually pretty cool. I bet that game would suck now, but I liked it a lot way back when. Later on, Superman takes it upon himself to creepily watch Lois and her family at their home. Richard talks to Lois about her old article called I spent the night with Superman and asks her if she loved Superman, and she says no. So Superman is bummed to hear this and goes out flying, and as he flies, Marlon Brando's voice eerily talks to him. The shot freezes in place, and Superman's cape is suspended weightlessly, and he hears something bad going on that he needs to stop from happening. It's a pretty cool shot, I'm not gonna lie. It's just him kind of out in space, and he's just looking down at Earth, and his cape is just kind of suspended, basically. I mean, that's really it. It appears to be a bank robbery of some sort that he needs to stop. The robbers are on the roof, and they've got a Gatling gun, and they're destroying the police cars on the ground pretty effectively. The guards come up and shoot the guy manning the Gatling gun several times in his bulletproof vest, and he angrily turns the Gatling gun on them, and it shifts into slow motion. As the gun starts to slowly fire, the bullets come out, and Superman is swooping in, and he shields the guards as the bullets deflect off his chest. It's like the guy with the Gatling gun has never seen nor heard of Superman before, and tries to just keep firing like it's gonna do fucking anything. One shot that was a big trailer moment is where this bullet hits Superman in the eye, and you just see the bullet flatten against it, it's pretty cool. Obviously, Superman stops the robbers because how could he not? There's this sequence where Kitty Kowalski is on a rampage in a runaway car, crying that she lost her brakes while Lex goes to a museum to presumably steal something. Apparently, this ploy with Kitty was to distract Superman so Lex could do what he needed to do, which is a decent plan, I suppose. Superman saves Kitty, and there's a giant crowd watching and taking pictures, 
and she asks him to take her to the hospital for heart palpitations, but I would think Superman would have the ability to detect lies or palpitations even based on heartbeat, but I guess that was too much to ask. The way they have Superman leave the ground when he drops off Kitty is just lifeless, but it's like the wind isn't even blowing and there's no noise at all, and I guess he does take off like that in the Reeve movies some, so I'll give this a pass. In Man of Steel, it often sounds like a sonic boom when Superman takes off, and it's pretty fucking sweet, but I'll get into that a little bit later. Lex gets whatever rock he was looking for, I guess, presumably kryptonite based on its green glow and whatnot. I didn't really need to see how Lex came by the kryptonite as a viewer. I'm fully willing to accept that he just gets some somehow. But the sequence with Kitty was enjoyable, I guess. I mean, it was basically, after watching this movie, it felt like a high point of the movie, and it is not... Very good. I mean, it's just okay. All the news shows at the planet are talking about Superman. Perry shows Lois and Jimmy two pictures and says they were taken by a 12-year-old with a flip phone camera. First off, no, the fuck they were not. Photos from those cameras always looked like they were taken with an actual fucking potato, honestly. Second, these photos would only look even worse if blown up into these size prints that he has. Third, one of the two pics of Superman holding up a car from underneath is deliberately made to look like the original Action Comics number one Superman first appearance. This movie loves its Easter eggs, but Easter eggs are supposed to be hidden and subtle so as to not easily be found. Oh my god, Jimmy shows Lois and Perry a very unclear pic of Superman and they can't see anything in it. And Jimmy actually says, no, look, in the sky. And Perry and Lois say, it's a bird, it's a plane. And that's the kind of cheesy shit that they could have done without in this fucking movie. Like, losing a handful of these references would have helped at the very least, I'd say. It wouldn't have fixed it, but it would have made it a little less insufferable. Clark comes into Perry's office with the rest of them, and they're talking about covering Superman. Jimmy suggests that they look into Lex Luthor, and Lois likes the idea, but Perry says Lex is yesterday's news. Then we find out through Jimmy talking to Clark, where Clark asks, Hey Jimmy, how did Lex Luthor get out of prison? And Jimmy says, Well, the appeals court called Superman as a witness, and he wasn't around. How much you think that pisses off Superman? So, like, I guess that was it? That was all the explanation we get on that whole thing? They didn't have a witness, and apparently they had no hard evidence at all. Is that what I'm to gather? Perry puts Clark on the blackout story and makes Lois go back to her roots and chase down Superman for a story. I don't get why they make Lois and Superman's child like a little weakling. Why not make him like a normal kid at least or something? Also, at this point, this movie is still trying to convince you that this might not be Superman and Lois's kid somehow, like there's any other man's child he could possibly be when they're presenting you with a kid that is just the right age for it. Now we're on Lex's yacht or something, and Kitty is yelling at him because he actually cut the brakes in her car to distract Superman instead of just pretending. And Lex is a little too smug in this for my blood, we don't really need to feel like another character is just dying to wink at the camera. Lois and Clark have agreed to work on the blackout story together, since Lois knows it's the real story. Richard and Lois talk about Superman a bit, and Richard points out some similarities to Clark. And then, of course, they laugh hysterically at that whole thing, because it's just that impossible to even think Clark could possibly be Superman. I mean, people can't just pretend to be nerdy as, like, a ruse or something. 
Lois decides to go up on the roof and Clark sees her go up. So he changes into Superman and talks to her up there. And we get yet another reference in, you know, you really shouldn't smoke Miss Lane from Superman 1 because this movie doesn't really want to make its own moment so much as it wants to rehash and reference old ones for some reason. Superman explains that he didn't think the jet crash was the best place to talk. Lois asks where Superman went for all that time, and he says Krypton, and she's perplexed because he said that the planet was destroyed. But we learn again that astronomers thought they'd found it, and he had to see it for himself. It seems like no one on Earth heard about the findings about Krypton, except for some astronomers and Superman and whoever the fuck built Superman's spaceship that can travel there. Lois explains to Superman that she can't believe he just left them like that, and basically she had to move on, and I'm on Lois's side here. Superman asks Lois to come fly with him because he has something to show her. Most likely he wants her to rediscover some of that Superman D. Lois keeps her guard up and remains distant for most of this interaction with Superman, and they fly out over the city of Metropolis. They're up so high, you'd think it'd be unbearably cold and windy as fuck up there, but nope, apparently not. He takes her back to the Daily Planet, and it seems like he didn't actually have anything that great to show her that she hadn't seen before. And honestly, there has been nothing even close to resembling a personality on screen, especially in this sequence. This is why I blame the writers, because X-Men and X-Men 2 were both Brian Singer movies, and I felt like there were some solid personalities, action, and humor in those. Certainly much better stories overall. In this movie, Lois has the closest thing to a personality, honestly, and it's still not much to write home about. Anyway, Lois basically shuts down Superman when he brings her back to the roof and says Richard is a good man. Lois gives Perry her story called Superman Returns and tells her she needs to stick with the story still, basically. Superman goes to the Fortress of Solitude and knows that it's been tampered with. I just can't get over how fucking fake his blue eyes look. It's just... Fucking insane. Lois chases up some leads on the blackout, and she seems to have found the source of it. So I guess the son's name is actually Jason, and I want to say that's the first time they've said it out loud maybe, but hopefully not. I hope that they actually did say it when we first see the kid. Lois and Jason go to this yacht because nothing bad could possibly happen with that whole idea. They're apparently tracking down the source of the blackout to this place somehow. I don't know how that works. But this is at best an innocent person's place of residence, maybe. And Lois is just breaking and entering, hoping to get an interview, I guess. I'm sure it'll just be a nice, heartwarming interview with a nice person who is trying to make the world a better place. Lois looks around with Jason and sees what I guess in her mind can't be anything other than Lex Luthor wigs, and she tries to get off the yacht immediately with Jason, and it's kind of like maybe you shouldn't have brought Jason along with you on this little excursion, Lois Lane. But the yacht starts up and leaves the dock, and they run into Lex, who is so surprised to see her there. This yacht is definitely a much nicer aesthetic than Lex's underground lair in Superman 1, Everyone is chilling out while Lex is talking to Jason unsuccessfully. They're playing pool on this boat, and I would just think that that's not where you want to play pool, unless there's just some kind of balancing mechanism to offset the wake of the ocean. I wouldn't want to play there at all. 
Lex and Lois have their little back and forth. Lois is criticizing Lex for swindling an old widow out of her money and having more time on his back-to-back life sentences. Lex points out that Lois wrote that Pulitzer Prize-winning article and talks some shit about Superman because clearly the world doesn't need him. Lois pleads with Lex to turn the boat around and at least let Jason go back to safety, even if it means keeping her... At the Daily Planet, Richard and Perry are realizing that Lois is missing now, which is pretty fucking quick work in my opinion. Lex reveals his plan to use crystals to create an entirely new continent. Lex says, Kitty, what did my father used to say to me? She says, you're losing your hair? Lex says, before that. Kitty says, get out. This is another reference to Superman 1, but is delivered so much more emotionlessly than the original. The original Lex at least laughs. I mean, Gene Hackman kind of humors the joke of it all. Anyway, the new continent will destroy most of the United States, and then eventually it'll destroy parts of Europe, Africa, and South America as well. Lois claims Superman will stop Lex, and Lex reveals that he has a lot of kryptonite. As he's holding the kryptonite, it occurs to him that Jason is probably Superman's child, despite what Lois tells him. He recognizes that the kryptonite is affecting Jason as he comes closer with it, and it's like, uh uh-oh. Kitty seems taken aback by Lex's true plan. Lex puts a crystal in this kryptonite cylinder and is about to launch it off to sea to create this continent island thing. There's a decent amount of tension with Lois and these goons on the yacht, who are just watching her and Jason, and one of the bad guys sits down and plays the piano with Jason, and it's kind of sweet, honestly. The floor of this room they're in is glass, and you can see the ocean below, and I've got to say, that's pretty fucking badass. They launch the kryptonite thing, and the ball is now rolling with this continent. Oh my god, there is a full hour of runtime left. Why has God forsaken me? Why? We see the island coming to be, and again... I don't necessarily feel like this is a bad Lex Luthor plot, but I can't stress it enough that there are other Superman villains out there that we've never seen in a live-action film before, ones that aren't Lex Luthor and or Ursa, Nan, and Zod. I guess we got Doomsday in Batman vs. Superman, but we still had to have Lex in that movie, which I guess is semi-comic book accurate, but I gather Lex didn't really create the original Doomsday but later improved on him in subsequent appearances. But it seems like these movies pick the villains they do because they're low risk or they want the audience to know them, and it's like, roll the dice and establish their character and make it clear what they're all about. Anywho, back to this movie, Lois gets caught trying to get out a call for help or something. I guess she was trying to send a fax. Jason sees her in distress fighting with the henchmen, and you know some shit's about to go down because he's hyperventilating. Jason pretty powerfully takes the guy out by throwing the piano at him. So they lock Lois and Jason in a walk-in cooler or pantry of some sort, and now all of a sudden Jason's Mr. I-don't-have-superhuman-strength-again and can't fucking get them out of there. When the men tell Lex about what happened with the piano, he knows it was the boy who did it. Lois's fax comes through at the Daily Planet, and it has coordinates to her location, which I'm not really sure how she came by those, but whatever, it's a movie, I suppose. It might have been like a thing with the fax machine that it automatically added your coordinates to the fax when you sent it. That could be definitely a possibility. 
Clark transforms into Superman in an elevator and flies out the top of it somehow, but it's at least more original than most of the things we've seen in this movie. Lex and company flee from the yacht in a helicopter, and I guess they're going to go hang out on their new lifeless island. At the planet, they feel tremors, and everything is reading like an earthquake, but it's actually the expansion of the island that's causing it. Superman has to save a sign from falling and maybe hitting someone, but it's not exactly feeling like the high-stakes moment that they represent it as. He uses his heat vision a bit, and it's just okay. We don't get the concentrated lasers coming out of his eyes as much as we get blurry redness around his face. Real chaos is broken out in Metropolis, and it's a pretty scary situation. The Daily Planet globe falls off the building, and Superman has to catch it just in time to save Perry from being squashed. It's actually pretty remarkable how much time Perry had to get clear of the globe, too. Like, he could have just saved himself. Cal Penn has barely said shit in this movie, and for a guy that I know can convey personality, it's a crying shame given what else we're working with here. The island is expanding and starting to come up beneath the yacht, but Richard shows up just in time to sort of rescue them, but not really. The island is pushing the yacht way up in the air, and I gotta say that the CGI is pretty decent initially, but then we almost immediately see a shot of the boat breaking in half, and that CGI is pretty shitty. Their half of the boat fell into the water, and there's basically no way they're getting to safety without a certain man of steel. And fun fact on that, the next movie I'm covering in this episode is actually called Man of Steel. I remember I had such a fucking crush on Kate Bosworth when this movie came out. It was like, man, she was gorgeous. But honestly, the performance, it's just not that good. So Superman comes to save them and pull the whole boat out of the water instead of just going in and saving them one at a time, which I guess is one way to do it. Oh yeah, Richard is a pilot. I forgot to mention that. That's how he got to the yacht. Superman helps him, and Lois and Jason take off to get back to safety. Superman arrives at this desolate island with no life of any kind, much like the performances in this film. Lex is talking to him, and he knows he's losing his strength because of all the kryptonite that is embedded in this island, like it's basically a large portion of what this island is made of. So Lex eventually punches him and knocks him down, and I gotta say, I would just love some consistency in the way that the kryptonite affects Superman. Like, it's never super clear how hard it'll hit him, but I would assume that there's enough kryptonite on this island to kill Superman before he could even get there, and he probably wouldn't even be able to fly as he approached it. Lois tells Richard they have to go back to help because she knows Superman is totally fucked and whatnot. Lex is legitimately fucking Superman up and stabs him with some kryptonite, yet he's still somehow not dead and he's able to stand, but he backs off the ledge of the island and falls into the water, and naturally Lex assumes he is done for, because Superman is not the kind of guy that you want to just double tap to make sure. Jason spots Superman in the water below the plane, so they make their descent to come save him. Lois just jumps right in the water as Superman is sinking like a stone, and I can't remember exactly how this goes down. How do they get around the kryptonite to stop Lex? Gosh, I'm just so excited to find out. Richard makes some daring maneuvers in the little plane and gets them out of a bad situation. Lois takes the shard of kryptonite out of Superman's torso, and he starts feeling better. In fairness, Lois did save Superman, and that's pretty significant. 
Superman goes up into the atmosphere to let the sun help him regain his strength. Then he zips right back down using his heat vision to go through a hole in the bottom of the ocean. And I guess we're to assume that he's stopping the island from growing out of control this way. I don't know. The movie does not do a very good job of explaining that. Kitty is having second thoughts about Lex's plan, and suddenly Lex realizes something is going on that's making the ground shake. It always astounds me. I get so many more notes in the first half of movies where all the setup is, and then like the second half, it just dies off. Like I'll have far fewer notes for the last hour of this movie than I did for the beginning of it. I guess there's just a lot more little moments to discuss early on in the movie. From what I gather, Superman is destroying the island from underneath, but I don't understand. There's not really a great narrative to make that clear. It seems to me that this island was made from kryptonite, and its very structure is laced with the deadly substance. How is the kryptonite not doing anything to Superman now with him just going underground? Also, the whole Superman going underground in the ocean and not actually seeing him do anything is just very unsatisfying overall. Even if it was like you saw him doing things and you didn't really understand what effects they were going to have and then they revealed it, that would be so much fucking better. I'd love it if Superman just came back to the island in a hazmat suit and just fought Lex that way. Superman is raising the entire island by himself and it's cool, but I still don't get the lack of kryptonite here and how it's not killing Superman even a little. He takes the island far up into the air and oh... There's the kryptonite. It starts poking out from where Superman is holding on under the island. Now, I'm more frustrated because it's seemingly not doing anything to him at all and it's allowing him to fly and shit. He sets the island adrift into space and sprawls out in the sun's rays, but it's not doing enough to bring his power back, so he's falling to Earth pretty quick. He hits the Earth and it makes a loud noise, but we don't get to see that impact because reasons. I mean, who'd want to see that? It probably wouldn't be that cool at all. They take Superman to the hospital and they're working to revive him. I would say that they need one of those daylight lamps. That's what people are always telling me to do for depression. But here's what my therapist told me. You have to spend like six to eight hours in the light of those lamps per day usually to feel a difference, which is not an option for me. There are still 22 minutes left in the runtime somehow, and I don't really remember what else happens in the rest of the movie from prior viewings. Perry has a Superman is dead headline mocked up on a newspaper and says to always be prepared because that'd be a hard thing to just throw together when it actually happened. Lois is obviously very distraught and her and Richard and Jason go to visit Superman at the hospital. Obviously the hospital is swarming with people given who the patient is and Lois and Jason leave Richard in the car and they somehow are eligible to go in and see Superman above anyone else that would want to, which would clearly be a lot of people. She's very upset, and Jason asks if he'll get better, but she says that she doesn't know. They've taken all of his clothes off, as they are known to do at hospitals, and Lois tries to talk to Superman, and she's leaning in like she's going to kiss him, and she finally does. I'll just say this right now. I think Kate Bosworth just looks and acts far too young for this part. It doesn't really work for me. And boy, oh boy, this ending is very fucking long and drawn out. It's kind of insane. Oh, we catch a two-second glimpse of Martha outside. 
and we see Lex and Kitty abandoned without gas for their helicopter on a desert island. And I gotta say, there are worse scenarios to be stuck in than being on an island with Parker Posey. But that scene ends with Kitty asking what they'll have to eat, and it's alluded to that Lex intends to eat their dog. Neat. It's like, oh no, will Superman live? This is just the overwhelming narrative of the end of this movie. Lois is going to write a story, but she can't think of what to put. And oh, by the way, Superman's alive, I guess. How did I miss that? I had to fucking rewind it back to this hospital room scene where he's just gone. The nurse goes in to tend to him, and when she walks in, he's just not there, and she hits the emergency button. Me and my damn fucking notes. I, like, miss parts of the movie just trying to sneak little notes in so I don't have to pause, and it just fucking sucks. But wouldn't you be watching Superman a little more closely? No, never mind. That doesn't make any sense. So anyway, Superman appears in Jason's bedroom, and he is just creepily watching him sleep, and it seems like Brandon Routh is almost emoting in this moment, if you can believe that. Then, he says things to the sleeping Jason that Jarrell said to him in recordings, and I actually like that quite a bit. It's a nice touch. Well done, movie. You got me. Lois goes out for a smoke and sees Superman leaving the kid's room, and she says, Will we see you around? He says, I'm always around. Good night, Lois. He flies off, and honestly, him flying away is pretty cool, until it ends with a shot-for-shot redoing of the ending from all the Reeve movies. And gosh, I just can't imagine how that ending could feel unsatisfying to audiences as a whole. You just get this kind of not personable farewell from Superman as he leaves Lois and doesn't really say anything or talk about anything else that might be going on. I mean, there's so much closure and everything's so fulfilling here. What more could you possibly ask for? And then we roll credits. So praise for this movie. The movie is very well shot, I will say that. I don't like the Instagram filter so much, but the different choices and the different shots that they get, it's pretty decent. I like it. By 2006 standards, the CGI is not wholly awful, but it's difficult to watch now. Some of the nods to the original Superman movies, like John Williams' themes, are nice choices. That being said, my criticism for the movie... There are way too many nods to the prior Superman works to where it almost feels bogged down by them. There is very little in the way of emotion or personality in any of these characters. The plot is overall underwhelming and not very inspired. And there are many reasons that this movie didn't get a sequel and the franchise was ultimately rebooted. So for trivia, the last line of Superman 4, The Quest for Peace from 1987, is Superman saying to Luther... See you in 20. That scene was filmed in 1986. Coincidentally, 20 years later, this film was released. Okay, neat, and I gotta say, I'm sure the timing of the production of this movie hinged almost entirely on that fucking throwaway line from one of the shittiest Superman movies ever. Brandon Routh, Kate Bosworth, and Kevin Spacey signed on without having read the script but it does seem like they might have been better off keeping it that way and just never reading the script. When Brian Singer became interested in possibly hiring Brandon Routh, he arranged for them to meet in a coffee shop. When they met at their table, Routh stumbled and spilled hot coffee all over the table. Although he panicked, thinking he had just lost the part, Singer laughed and said it actually helped him get the part. 
The incident convinced Singer that Routh could pull off the clumsy, bumbling Clark Kent, which we really don't get much clumsy, bumbling Clark Kent in this movie, by the way. Brian Singer wanted Christopher Reeve to make a cameo appearance in the film, but Reeve died before filming began. Singer then decided to dedicate the film to him. Though it performed below box office expectations, not only did it outgross Batman Begins from 2005, but it was the second highest grossing DC Comics film ever made at the time, after Batman from 1989. When offered the director's chair, Brian Singer rejected J.J. Abrams' script as too far a departure from the source material. Abrams' story reimagined Superman as a Kryptonian prince sent to Earth as a baby to avoid an impending civil war between King Jor-El and his brother Katazor. Raised as Midwestern teen Clark Kent and in love with his high school sweetheart Lois, Superman becomes humanity's defender when Katazor invades Earth, aided by CIA agent Lex Luthor, who is actually a Kryptonian in disguise. The film ended with Superman returning to Krypton to rule over his people after the death of Jor-El. Singer disagreed with these changes to one of America's most well-known characters and decided instead to pursue a storyline to act as both a sequel and a soft reboot, which would honor the character's history, as well as the popular films by Richard Donner. During filming, Kevin Spacey would drive around in a golf cart, called Lex's Super Buster, dragging a stuffed Superman doll behind on a rope and yelling, Superman must die, into a megaphone. This is honestly not as bad as Jared Leto sending used condoms to the cast of Suicide Squad, but it does feel pretty fucking dumb. Brian Singer is on record as saying Superman Returns is a loose follow-up to Superman from 1978 and Superman 2 from 1980, but it does not follow those movies as continuity strictly. It ignores Superman 3 and Superman 4. However, there is a reference to Supergirl from 1984, which was released between the third and fourth films. A radio announcer reports Superman is off on a space mission to a faraway galaxy. Wait, that's a reference to Supergirl? I don't really recall that movie very well, but was that the story on Superman's absence in that movie? I really don't feel like that was what they were going for, to be honest. Brandon Routh put on 20 pounds of muscle for the movie. It took 12 years and three vastly different directors to finally get the project off the ground. Jude Law was Brian Singer's only choice to play General Zod. After Law turned down the role several times, Singer eliminated the character from the script. Zod went on to subsequently appear as the main villain in Man of Steel from 2013, with Michael Shannon portraying the character. Kevin Smith's original script, to which Tim Burton was immediately attached, was the 1993 comic book story arcs The Death of Superman and The Return of Superman. After a lengthy development process, Warner Brothers chose not to go with Smith's script and hired other writers, such as Alias creator J.J. Abrams, to revive the series. A sequel was planned with Bizarro and Brainiac as possible villains. However, due to frequent delays as well as the first film's massive budget and underwhelming box office return, it was canceled. It was to be called Man of Steel, which became the title of the 2013 reboot film directed by Zack Snyder. And honestly, I want to see never-before-seen villains like these and Metallo, maybe, 
in Superman movies, Lex Luthor is almost as bad as the Joker with how many different iterations there are. Brandon Routh, who plays Superman, and Kevin Spacey, who plays Lex Luthor, don't share any screen time until 112 minutes into the film. The female actress voice used in the airplane computer is also the same voice used in Professor X's Cerebro in the X-Men films, also directed by Brian Singer. Alright, going on to info and ratings, we have a runtime of 154 minutes. This movie is rated PG-13 by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $270 million. Opening weekend, $52.5 million. Worldwide gross, $391.1 million. IMDb rating, 6.1. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 74%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 61%. Personal rating, 2.5 out of 5 stars. This movie is just too up its own ass with old Superman references and leaves a lot to be desired in its writing and major action sequences. Despite being considered successful, Superman Returns did not yield the grosses studios had hoped, and further potential installments in the same timeline were scrapped in favor of rebooting the series, starting with Man of Steel, released on June 14, 2013, based on DC Comics characters and stories, originally developed by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, directed by Zack Snyder, And he made the remake of Dawn of the Dead, and it's probably one of the better remakes ever. It's really well done. He added some flair to it that wasn't in the original. It is basically what I want to see in a remake, essentially. Like, not slapping the original movie in the face, not completely redoing it, not doing a shot-for-shot remake of it. Then he did a bunch of DCEU movies. Actually, pretty much just a couple of them. I don't... I think he did... Batman v Superman and Justice League, but I don't think he did any other DCEU ones. He just produced them. And then he did Army of the Dead, which I couldn't even make it all the way through. I kind of just didn't think it was very good. For the writers, we have David S. Goyer. For the producers, we have Charles Roven, Christopher Nolan, Emma Thomas, and Deborah Snyder. For the score, we have composer Hans Zimmer. For the cast, we have Henry Cavill, who plays Clark Kent slash Superman, and he was in The Witcher, and I think they shit-canned him from that show or something. Something happened. I don't think he's on the show anymore. Then we have Amy Adams, who plays Lois Lane, and she was in Catch Me If You Can. That's obviously not one of her better-known roles. I mean, that was probably one of her first bit parts in a major movie, I think. But honestly, I love that one. It's previously covered on this podcast. I really enjoy it. Then we have Michael Shannon, who plays General Zod, and he was in 8 Mile, and he played the guy that was fucking Eminem's mom in that movie, and it's like, yeah, you could do a whole lot worse than banging Kim Basinger. Then we have Kevin Costner, who plays Jonathan Kent, and he was in Field of Dreams and Bull Durham, and those are both baseball movies, and I just, I'm not a big Kevin Costner fan. Then we have Diane Lane, who plays Martha Kent, and she was in... Judge Dredd, which is terrible. Dredd is a much better movie, in my opinion. Check that one out. It's got Carl Urban. It's very cool. It's very well shot. Then we have Lawrence Fishburne, who plays Perry White, and he was in the Matrix movies as Morpheus, and those movies are pretty solid. They're not all great, but I like the original three pretty well. I don't have a lot of problems with them like a lot of people do. Then last but not least, we have Russell Crowe, who plays Jarrell, 
And he was in Gladiator, which is a great movie. And he was in L.A. Confidential, which I talked about when I talked about Kevin Spacey on the last movie. And that means that there is some heavy connective tissue beyond just Superman being in both of these movies. He was in A Beautiful Mind and Cinderella Man. And both of those movies I wasn't overly impressed with. They were kind of blah. For casting notes, among those considered to play Superman were Tyler Hecklin, Matthew Good, Zac Efron, Army Hammer, Jamie Doman, Joe Manganiello, and Colin O'Donohue. And I honestly don't know even half of those actors. They don't sound familiar, but I probably would know them if I saw them, maybe. Among those considered to play Lois Lane were Kristen Stewart, Zoe Saldana, Olivia Wilde, and Mila Kunis. This was Amy Adams's third time auditioning for Lois Lane. She first read for Lois Lane in Brett Ratner's abandoned film Superman Flyby, and then for Superman Returns from 2006. Adams has stated that it became ridiculous, and this time she had to play Lois just to put her stamp on it. For the plot synopsis, a lone boy evacuated from a dying planet is jettisoned to Earth where he has superhuman abilities. After working through the struggles of his adolescence, three criminal beings from his home planet arrive to turn the planet into something more like their home world. For the tagline, we just have accomplished wonder. Not anything special, honestly. Alright guys, let's just dive right into the plot of this fucking movie. So, I watched this installment of the franchise in 4K ultra high definition, even though I can't really tell the difference from regular HD. Of course, it opens with Lara giving birth, and we're seeing all of these 3D ultrasounds. Jarrell takes the baby and just kind of beholds what he's created and brought into this dying planet. Jarell is pleading with Kryptonian leadership that the planet will destroy itself soon. Apparently, they harvested the core of the planet that was already at death's door, which was not a good idea, and it has accelerated the death process. All of these people on the council suggest that there was no other choice but to do what they did. I do feel like there are a lot of parallels between this and Earth, but I'm sure that's what the writers were going for. Jarell begs them to give him control of something called the Codex, and he wants to try and save what's left of Krypton, but suddenly the discussion is interrupted by a pack of ne'er-do-wells with blasters. They're led by General Zod, who disbands the council. Jort asks Zod why he's doing this, and Zod accuses the council of destroying the planet, and I can't say that it seems like he's wrong. Zod pleads with Jor to join him in his resistance fight, and I gotta say... Zod seems more like a take-charge-and-do-what's-necessary kind of guy, and we could use more of that, but the means to his ends in this movie are ultimately not okay, and I can't really approve of them. Jor is clearly not a fan of what Zod's doing, though, and he fears for Zod's ability to pick and choose who would live and who would die, I guess. Zod doesn't wish to make an enemy of Jor, but he will if it's necessary, and I can respect that. They take Jor captive, and when they get to a security checkpoint of some sort, they recognize Jor is in distress, and a defense mechanism kicks in and kills these supposed bad guys. Jor tells Lara to ready the launch of their infant son's escape pod, and he's got to take care of business on a four-winged creature before he can be with her. Honestly, this whole sequence on Krypton doesn't get the credit it deserves for being so fucking badass and purely immersive, honestly. Jor goes underwater and gets a skull, and I can't really remember what that's all about or what he's going to use it for. 
I'm still not 100% on what the Codex's function is either. I want to say it's like a key to a weapon. Maybe the terraformer thing that we see later because I think the Codex does come back into play. But what I'm actually looking at is not the Codex. It's very different from the Codex. It's called a command key and is used to control computers or something. Jor comes back to Lara and Cal, and they've decided on Earth as a destination planet because of the undeniable benefits it will have for Cal. I'm struggling just calling him Jor, because in Superman 1, they only call him Jor-El, and to be fair, that's like saying his full name to him. There's a very heartfelt farewell with our sad little family as they realize that this is all actually happening right now like they thought it would. Jor has a pretty sweet dark suit on in these scenes, but I'm a sucker for the black suit Superman. They go to initiate the launch of the pod, and Zod's people detect it, and they come and find Jor in a suit of armor of sorts. Zod wants the Codex, but it went with Cal's escape pod, and Zod demands to know what Jor has done and where it was going. Jor says, we've had a child, Zod. A boy child. And I don't know why, but the fucking wording of that just amuses me to no end. A boy child. Michael Shannon is fucking great as Zod, by the way, and so is Russell Crowe as Jarrell. They have a huge fist fight, and Lara launches the pod finally. Like, what the fuck were they waiting for? Then Zod straight up stabs and kills Jor really graphically. Zod asks Lara where they sent the baby, and she says that he's beyond their reach. Finally, the army comes and puts down General Zod's rebellion, and they sentence Zod to an eternity in the Phantom Zone? No, not yet. Not in those words. Not in this moment. They sentence him and his rebels to 300 cycles of reconditioning, which I guess is the same thing as life in the Phantom Zone. I prefer vagrancy, three weeks in the ISO cubes from Dread. I just fucking love it. Zod threatens Lara that he will find little Cal and kill him, and I'm like, why are these guards giving him so much free reign to threaten someone like her up close? Why aren't they, like, immediately taking him away from there? I don't get it. There's a lot of cool imagery in what I used to think was an overlong opening sequence, but I've come around to it. Lara basically watches Krypton fall to ruin and promptly dies in the ensuing explosion of the planet. There's some slow violin music playing as we see the escape pod travel across the galaxy. Now, that was a much quicker trip than in Superman 1, I will say that, despite the lengthier Krypton scenes that make up for that time. Now we're on a fishing boat, and I've got to say, I do get restless during these early Clark, pre-Superman scenes, but this is pretty sweet. This oil rig is on fire, and the men aboard are facing certain death, but the beefed-up shirtless hunk Henry Cavill comes to save them, and he's legitimately on fire and shit. It's all in all pretty fucking badass. I, obviously, Henry Cavill plays Clark Kent slash Superman. Clark leads the men out and helps them get to safety. He literally stops a tower from falling on the rescue helicopter. Naturally, just enough of his pants don't burn through so we don't see his manly bits. Clark's just laying in the water and he starts having a flashback to grade school. But first, I must ask, how long can Superman hold his breath underwater? Like, is it a human amount of time, or is it more because he's Kryptonian? Does he even truly have to breathe at all? I mean, he goes into space, so I'm guessing not. So I googled it, and it turns out Superman does not need to breathe, but on planets with red suns, he would be susceptible to drowning or asphyxiation like Earthlings are on Earth. 
Back with Clark in grade school, his teacher is asking him a question. All of his powers are going haywire and he's freaking right the fuck out about it, so he goes and locks himself in a closet in the hallway. Not really sure I agree with the protocol here. The teacher goes after him and the entire class comes with her and, like, wouldn't you have a plan for if a kid just runs off that doesn't require bringing your whole class along? Anyway, Clark's adoptive mother, Mrs. Kent, comes, and she's played by the stone-cold fox, Diane Lane, but they definitely went to great lengths to make her uglier and older here. She tries to calm Clark, who can hear all the mean shit that the kids are saying outside the door. He says the world's too big, and she tells him to make it small and just focus on her voice. He finally comes out and wants to know what's wrong with him, And then we're back with Hunky, I mean, Henry Cavill. They really did give us a fair share of shirtless Clark early on in this, and I'm sure everybody is thankful. Fun fact, Henry Cavill cut his calorie intake from 5,000 to 1,500 per day for six weeks to film his two shirtless scenes. His body fat reached 7% during this time, which is on par with that of professional bodybuilders. Zack Snyder said that he really wanted to include a shirtless scene of Henry Cavill in the film because throughout the film, you see him in a form-fitting bodysuit where he appears extremely muscular. He said the audience would think it was all rubber muscles, but it was important to show them that it was indeed Cavill's body in that suit and that it was all real. There's another flashback to a school bus with a slightly older young Clark than the last flashback, but this one is definitely a different kid who looks way more like Cavill. Couldn't they have just made it be that kid in both scenes? He's getting bullied on the short bus, and suddenly the bus gets a flat tire and spins out of control and flies off a bridge into a waterway. Young Clark opts to save the bus with his bare hands, and the kids see him do it. He brings the bus ashore and manages to go back under to save the bully from drowning as well. I'm not sure if I buy this Clark getting bullied. He looks like a preppy kid to me. He doesn't look like he'd be the victim of bullying at all. The mother of the bully comes to talk to the Kents about what her son saw, and we get our first taste of Kevin Costner's Jonathan Kent. The Kents are kind of running interference and downplaying the story to make it seem like this little asshole kid made it all up and at the very least exaggerated the whole thing. Jonathan goes out to talk to Clark, who says he just wanted to help. Jonathan says that they talked about this and says he needs to keep that side of himself a secret. Clark asks a very fair question, which is, what was I supposed to do? Just let him die? To which Jonathan, no joke, says, maybe. Jonathan explains that there is more at stake than their lives or the lives of those around them. I guess this is the proposed dilemma. If you could reasonably save someone from harm or death without harming or killing yourself, aren't you, like, morally obligated to do that? I mean, shouldn't you do all you can to save people if it's possible? Jonathan explains that there are concerns over what will happen when the world finds out what Clark can do. Clark asks if God did this to him, and he wants to know why he's like this. Jonathan takes Clark to see the probe he landed in as a baby that they keep in their barn cellar. No telling how they got it from the crash site to the barn unnoticed by themselves, but what can you do? It's a movie. He explains that Clark is not of this world and says he's the answer to the question, are we alone in the universe? 
Clark says he doesn't want to be any of this, and Jonathan says he can't blame him, but he says he's clearly there for a reason. Jonathan says that he'll someday think of this whole thing as a blessing, and there's a nice little moment where Clark asks him if he can just keep pretending to be his son, and Jonathan says, you are my son, but he explains that he once had another father out there too. Then we're back with Cavill, and he's working at a dive bar somewhere, Clark stops a man from sexually assaulting a waitress and kindly tells him if he doesn't stop, he's going to have to ask him to leave. The man throws his food and beverage on Clark, and the waitress tells Clark the guy's not worth it. So I guess Clark just up and leaves that job. Must not be a two weeks notice kind of guy. Then we see the same piece of shit guy leave later that night, and his semi-truck has been skewered with a bunch of logs from its trailer multiple times over again, and it's like, holy shit. Finally, we get the smoke show Amy Adams as Lois Lane. I guess Clark is somehow a hired hand for the military now or something. She comes to a snowy region to see a spaceship crash site, I think. The military is there and stuff, and they're trying to figure out what they're dealing with. So Lois goes out at night when she's not supposed to in order to investigate, and she sees who appears to be Clark. And I gotta say, Amy Adams has the right spunk and moxie to play Lois Lane. She's great looking and she can fucking act. Like, what more could I ask for? Lois is inside the fortress and we see that Clark is too. I'm gathering it's the first time he's been here because he finds a thing to put the command key into that he found in his baby escape pod. A robot thing comes and seemingly attacks him for a minute, but of course he puts a stop to that. Elsewhere, inside of what it turns out is the Fortress of Solitude, Lois is looking around and she's seeing a lot of what Clark's already seen. Little trivia on that, the Fortress of Solitude in this film is a Kryptonian spacecraft secreted in the Arctic. This combines various comic versions of the Fortress of Solitude, an Arctic location with a key, the Silver Age comics from 1958, an artifact from the previous Kryptonians, Adventures of Superman from 1989, and an abandoned ship, the New 52 comics from 2011. Clark finds some bodies and then has to go save Lois from the probe he was attacked by. He crushes it with his bare hands and explains to Lois that she's hemorrhaging internally and he has to cauterize the wound. But before he does this, he explains that he can do things that other people can't really do. I feel like if someone said this to me, I'd be like, yeah, okay, buddy, I'm sure you're God's gift to Earth, not realizing the perceived irony of that thought. So he goes through with a heat vision cauterization, and somehow the ship is now activated. I guess that's because of the command key. Lois reads the story of what happened in voiceover, and then it shows her finishing it in front of Perry White, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Perry tells her he can't print the story because she may have hallucinated some of it, and the Pentagon is denying what happened. And Lois is of course frustrated that Perry won't run the story, so she leaks it to a conspiracy website of some sort, hoping that Clark will see it and know that she knows his deal. I guess Clark is on board the ship and Jarrell appears and introduces himself and explains that he's his father. I'm not fully sold on the whole Jarrell hologram thing. Like, it'd work if it was just the way they did it instead of a floating Marlon Brando head. But Russell Crowe is basically a major player in this movie, I'd say. But it's not clear how it all works. He claims he's just a shadow of Jor's consciousness, but he answers some of Clark's questions about who he is, where he came from, and why he was sent to Earth. 
Jor kind of shares a little bit about everything, including General Zod and Krypton's history. Cal being Krypton's first natural birth in centuries is not something I remember from Superman 1, but apparently it exists in the comics outside of this movie. You see, the children of Krypton were born inside what they call the Genesis Chamber, which is also known as a birthing matrix, and they have eugenic predestination and are kept separate from their parents until a certain age. But with him being a natural birth, he is able to forge his own destiny. Jor presents Cal with his super suit. He explains the symbol is the crest of House L, and it means hope, even though it looks like an S. Fun fact, the idea that Superman's S-shield means hope is taken from Mark Wade's Superman Birthright comic. The S-shield is the Kryptonian symbol for hope, and Superman 1978 created the concept of the shield being a Kryptonian herald for the House of L. I don't think Superman 1 cuts to the chase with showing him in full costume as soon as this one does, but they both take quite a while to get there. So Superman goes out to do some flying for a bit, and it seems exhilarating to him, but he's actually just making huge jumps initially before full-on flying. Little trivia on that, when Clark is first learning to fly, he is only able to make a few gigantic bounds. In the first few Superman comics in 1938 and 1939, he was not able to fly, but could only leap one-eighth of a mile like a high-powered kangaroo. But this trivia item says that the first cartoons and movies decided that this looked undignified and made him fly, which looks more majestic. But I believe the true story on this, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was because when they were making the Fleischer cartoons from the 1940s, it wasn't that he looked undignified, it was that it was more difficult to animate Superman making several jumps all the time as opposed to just having him fly. So they made that a thing and they just decided that he was going to fly from now on. Jor tells him that he will help the people of Earth accomplish wonders. Nothing like building expectations for your son and audience. The effects of him flying are truly amazing though. Fucking solid. It's funny to me that Crow is in this movie so fucking much though. It's like he didn't even fucking die on Krypton. It's like he's still fucking alive completely. It's more funny in that Marlon Brando would have only been in the Superman movies this much if he could do his scenes while sitting in a fucking recliner eating pork rinds. Lois is going around getting the scoop on what experiences people have had with Clark. She eventually finds Pete Ross, who is the manager of an IHOP, and he's the bully that Clark saved in the bus accident as a kid. This leads Lois to Martha Kent, and she asks her about Clark. Then she's at a cemetery for some reason, and Clark shows up there. She wants to tell his story, but he doesn't really want his story told, which does seem to be on par with the life he's been leading. Cavill's American accent is really fucking stellar, I must say that. I honestly can't even tell that he's not American. We get a flashback to what I guess is teenage Clark with the Kents riding around, they seemingly do something to make his voice slightly higher pitched, or maybe I'm just imagining that, I don't know. Clark points out that they're not really his parents, and it's an unpleasant exchange, but it is such a cliche teenage thing to do that actually does feel real, like he complains that Jonathan is not his real dad. They seemingly drive right into a tornado, and everyone of course heads for the overpass, because that's totally a good call. 
Fun tidbit, hiding under an overpass during a tornado, as is done in the movie, is not considered to be a safe shelter by the National Weather Service due to a wind funneling issue called the Venturi Effect that heightens the risk of being struck by moving debris as the wind's force is concentrated while blowing through the tighter gaps. Jonathan goes to save a dog from a car and gets his leg trapped. He wrestles it free, but his leg appears to be pretty well broken, so he can't get clear of the tornado. He waves Clark off from coming to rescue him, I guess just to prove a point and keep the secret alive. But it's like, dude, you don't have to die like this. This ignores the fact that at this point, Clark could have totally saved him, and it wouldn't even be suspicious. But it's important that Jonathan Kent dies, because that's kind of a big thing. In Superman 1... He just dies of a heart attack, and it breaks Clark's heart to know he couldn't do anything to save him. Back at the cemetery, Clark pleads with Lois that his father knew he needed to wait to show people his abilities. Then back at the planet, Lois gets a three-week unpaid suspension for leaking the story to the conspiracy site. Perry says he believes she saw something, but he thinks it's right to drop the story because of how people would react to it. It's important to note that this irresponsible leaking of the story turned out to have minorly bad secondary consequences later. We see Clark come home and tell his mom that he found his birth parents and his people, and she says she's happy for him, but you can tell she's also kinda not. She tells him that she's worried about him even as a baby, that the whole world would find out about him. At this military base, they discover a ship that has entered the Earth's orbit, and they know that it's not good. And now the UFO is all over the news. Ma Kent calls it to Clark's attention outside the farmhouse. Then the UFO takes over the news and communicates and keeps saying, You are not alone. This is honestly a very fucking spooky sequence. It kind of reminds me of that movie Signs, which I actually liked despite some stupid plot elements in it. It's Zod communicating, and he's demanding that they surrender Cal within 24 hours, or the world will suffer the consequences. The conspiracy site guy comes forward and says that Lois knows who Cal is, and almost immediately the FBI converges on Lois's location. So she flees, and we don't see it, but I guess she gets caught shortly after she sees the feds from outside of her window, then we get a flashback to young Clark getting bullied, but the bullies do it right in front of where Jonathan Kent works. Why? What kind of dumb decision is that? You just know the fight's gonna get broken up. I mean, come on. Jonathan tells Clark he needs to figure out what kind of man he wants to be. I will say, I don't know that I really love the whole bouncing around with the flashbacks like they do, but it's not bad. It seems to work. Clark tells the preacher man at a church what's going on, and Clark expresses that Zod can't be trusted, and so he has to decide what he needs to do. He goes to this desert military base and agrees to surrender on the condition that they give Lois her freedom, and that seems like a fair trade. Lois and Superman are sitting in an interrogation room, and he tells her how the emblem on his chest means hope on his planet. She almost pitches that it could stand for Superman, but the bigwigs interrupt from behind the one-way mirror. Superman warns the military that all the precautions they're taking are not necessary, but they reasonably stated that they have every reason to be cautious. The general says he's been given orders to hand Superman over to Zod, so Superman goes along with it. So I have an issue with certain parts of this movie, and I want to see if I can remember what they were this time around. 
Ursa, who is Zod's right-hand lady, comes in a shuttle to get Superman and wants to take Lois as well. While captive, Superman hands Lois the command key and then she's fitted with a breathing helmet. They come to see Zod and Superman has an awful reaction to the simulated Kryptonian atmosphere that he's never ever been in. This is because he's really just so used to Earth's atmosphere that even though he should be at home in the Kryptonian atmosphere. He's just not used to it. Zod explains to Cal in what feels like a dream sequence how he and his comrades were sentenced to life in the Phantom Zone. I'm gonna be honest, Zod explains a fuck ton more shit here than I'd care to write about in my notes, but some takeaways are the destruction of Krypton is what released them from the Phantom Zone. They were able to retrofit some equipment and save themselves. There's a lot of cool imagery to be seen throughout this sequence. They found a world engine that I think would allow them to make a new Krypton out of an existing planet. Cal's triggering of the scout ship where he met Lois is what led Zod and company to find him on Earth. Anyway, Zod wants him to join up with them and terraform Earth to become a new Krypton of sorts, but this will actually destroy Earth, of course, because there's no such thing as a free lunch. God, Zack Snyder makes amazing dark visuals. I personally prefer him over Tim Burton any day. But I gotta say, I would think this could be scary for little kids. This whole sequence, like, he's in a field of fucking skulls and shit. I mean, come on. They take some of Superman's blood, and Lois goes and inserts the codex into a portal thing, and Jor appears and is being uploaded into their mainframe. Jor plots to defeat Zod with Lois's help, and they convert the ship's atmosphere to that of Earth, and Superman regains his strength. Jor sends Lois back to Earth to get something called a Phantom Drive. They keep saying the names of these things like they did a good job introducing them and showing you what they do, but in reality, they didn't do a great job of really spelling out what everything does and what every name was. Superman has to save Lois as she plummets to the Earth, and he takes her to safety at a farm. Zod comes to Ma Kent and wants to know where the craft that Cal arrived in is, but she won't tell him, so he just kind of finds it because she looks in the direction of the barn. I've got this awful feeling that for the next 40 minutes of this movie or so, I'll try to keep up, but it's mostly going to be dudes throwing each other into buildings and crushing poor Wally's legs with an I-beam. Sorry, that's a little Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice reference you'll get later. So Superman pushes Zod through a silo, and what I want to point out now is they keep doing this, throwing each other into stuff, but both know that it won't really do anything. I mean, it's all very exciting watching them fight, but realistically, it's only the endangerment of people that really makes the stakes high. They crash into a gas station and it causes an explosion. Zod deactivated his protective helmet and he's starting to feel the sensory overload that Superman experienced as a child. But I feel like this moment happens way too early on and Zod recovers way too quickly. I would have liked to have seen this happen late when Zod has the upper hand and then Superman gets the final advantage. The military is moving in and they lock in on the Kryptonians. The bad guys attack the fighter jets. Then Ursa and Superman fight in the IHOP and Ursa says some pretty hurtful things to Superman. We see the bully from Clark's childhood and he's managing the IHOP, and it's just basically like he recognizes who Clark is, and nothing is said, and there's just like a mutual understanding of what's going on. 
The one who appears to be non has no personality like he did in Superman 2, and that's a real letdown. He provided good humor in that movie. These fight sequences in the final act are fucking badass, though. So much great CGI. The military gives the word to attack all of the aliens, including Superman, and this is because they don't know that they can believe Superman is not in on the evil plot. This chick who plays Ursa is pretty fucking cool, in my opinion. Not terribly bad looking, either. The head military colonel, we'll call him Detective Elliot Stabler, is pretty outmatched when his helicopter crash lands in the town. All the people who bitch about the destruction in this movie can just eat a big bag of dicks. They're just the type of people who have to bitch about something and can't be happy with anything. The military men stand down in the face of Superman, and Detective Stabler says that he is not their enemy, which is good because they didn't need another bad guy to lose against. Then Superman quick stops at the farm to hang out with his mom and check in on her. I do like the higher stakes of putting Ma Kent in danger during this movie. She doesn't really do much in the Reeve movies. Lois shows up and says she knows how to stop Zod, but of course we can't know how just yet. Stupid suspense building in movies, damn it all. Then, with the baddies, they've discovered that the Codex is actually embedded in Superman's cells? Now I'm just overly confused. I didn't even understand what the Codex was before this moment, and then when they said that, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Okay, I was very confused by all of the weird terminology in this, but apparently what I was originally thinking was the Codex was actually the command key, and I had to go back and update my notes later to correct it, and it's still not very clear. So the scientist who made the discovery says that Kal-El does not need to be alive to extract the Codex from him. Zod releases the world engine. They're these three-pronged things that will go to opposite ends of the planet and terraform the planet to turn it into Krypton. They bring the Phantom Drive online to start the process, and I have pretty much no idea what any of these terms even mean anymore at all. The military realizes what Zod is up to, and they finally call Superman by name. So they're taking Superman's baby pod to make its Phantom Drive collide with Zod's ship and create a black hole to get rid of the Kryptonians. What's important is this all makes sense to the people in the movie, but I can't explain it to save my life, and it's actually probably not that complicated at all. Lois points out that Superman may be made weaker if they're turning the planet into Krypton, and he confirms that this is possible. The military has to launch the pod using their planes, and it just seems pretty fucking iffy and very risky. Jor comes to talk Zod out of doing what he's doing, but Zod doesn't want to be lectured. The military's missiles are being pulled down by the Kryptonian gravity. Superman fights this goofy 3D defense thing with Doc Ock claws of some sort. They're legitimately fucking Metropolis right the hell up, though. Zod is definitely not abandoning the plan here, and he asks Jor if he can experience the pain he felt when he was alive. My guess would be yes, since it seems like Jor-El is just a full-blown living person for all intents and purposes. Perry is on the streets of Metropolis, and boy, is the situation dire as fuck. I gotta say, the imagery is pretty fucking amazing. It's probably some of the best I've seen. I've heard a lot of people bitch about this movie, but you can't deny the visual effects. They're unparalleled in their time, and they've clearly held up. Superman flies into the world engine and destroys it, apparently, and it's very gripping. 
but this puts him down for the count and he has to wait for the sun to recharge him. The military is now being attacked by Zod and company to prevent them from doing whatever it is that they're still doing. Superman and Zod have a bit of a showdown. The military activates the baby pod, but they have to fight to push the flash drive thing in to activate it while Ursa is fighting all of them on this cargo plane. Yeah, a lot of shit going on. Lois gets rescued by Superman while there's just a hail of debris all around. They land by Perry and company and Lois kisses Superman and they think the coast is clear. But would you believe this movie is not going to let Zod go down in that way? Michael Shannon is stupendous, by the way. He's really going all in on this and I fucking love it. Zod wants vengeance for Superman blowing up his shit and he threatens to kill each and every one of the Earthlings that Superman loves so much. So they fuck up even more of what's left of Metropolis. One gripe I have that I know has been brought forth before is the issue of Superman taking years to develop his powers by soaking up the sun's rays and then conveniently that's just not really so much of a thing for the evil Kryptonians. They just come there and within no time at all it seems like they just have all of these powers. Like that could have been a cool slight advantage to level the playing field but only their basic lack of flying holds them back but they can jump like OG Superman any day. They're fist fighting in the streets but Zod has the upper hand because he's wearing armor. There's a big showdown on the roof and Zod sheds his armor for no reason other than to prove that he can go without it because he thinks he's superior. Zod points out that he was born to do this and Superman wasn't. They're literally just punching and throwing each other into buildings and shit still. The stakes are either incredibly high or very low since they can't seem to kill each other. Then they're in a building and Zod goes to kill these people with his heat vision and Superman has to snap his neck to save them and it ultimately kills Zod of course. It seems like maybe he could have just put his hand in the way or moved Zod's head, but no, yeah, that's all he could do, guys. He had to kill him. He cries out in devastation, and it's like, meh, that's what I would have done to a dude who is basically space Hitler. I would have literally snapped his neck and peed on his lifeless body and been pretty fucking proud of it, honestly. Next thing we know, we're at a military base, and Superman has destroyed a $12 million surveillance drone, and I'd be willing to bet that it cost a lot more than that, but maybe not. He tells the American general that he's not going to let them find out who he is. The general wants to know how they can trust him not to act against America. And Superman says that he grew up in Kansas and he's about as American as it gets. And they'll just have to trust each other. And this is true. If he doesn't know anything other than life on Earth in America, then he is an American. The general turns around and there's a female officer smiling he asks her what she's grinning about and she says that she just thinks Superman is kind of hot. And I mean, I get it. It's kind of a weird moment, but I get it. Then Clark and Martha go back to Jonathan's grave and talk for a bit and we get a little memory sequence that's kind of nice, I guess. Martha wants to know what Clark's going to do now and Clark's getting a job where he can keep his ear to the ground and he gets introduced or reintroduced to everyone by Perry at the Daily Planet. And I gotta say, I always forget that Lois just knows who Clark is at the end of this movie. It's just like, there's never any of that anonymity for Superman and Clark Kent. She just fucking knows. 
And then we roll credits. So praise for this movie. Obviously, the visual effects are top-notch. The story is pretty well-written, in my opinion. And the casting choices are pretty great. I think Superman needs more work from a writing perspective to give him a better personality. And obviously, the plot itself is just excellent. It's really well done. For criticism, I could have gone without Kevin Costner, as always. And this movie always gets a little bogged down with terminology that adds way too much confusion into everything. For trivia, Henry Cavill refused to take steroids to muscle up for the role. He also refused any digital touch-ups or enhancement to his body in his shirtless scenes. He said it would have been dishonest of him to use trickery while playing Superman, and he wanted to push his body to the limits to develop his physique into one that was worthy of the character. Clark's line, Can't I keep pretending I'm your son? And Jonathan's response, You are my son, are taken from Superman's Secret Origin by Jeff Johns. During Jor-El and Kal-El's first conversation with the 3D history of Krypton, Jor tells Cal about how he was sent away. In the background, a pod with the S and spikes can be seen flying away. This is not the way it looks in this movie, but in fact how it appears in Superman from 1978. Zack Snyder originally planned for the infamous red trunks that Superman has worn throughout his 75-year existence to be a part of the suit in this movie. However, when looking over 1,500 different designs, he said that it just didn't work, and so he decided to take them out. The majority of the action scenes use a CGI cape for Superman and CGI armor for the other Kryptonians. This is the first live-action Superman not to feature the character Jimmy Olsen. Not only was the Jimmy Olsen character in every live-action Superman movie prior to Man of Steel, but he was also in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Smallville, and Supergirl TV shows, and he also appeared in the film Supergirl from 1984. Lawrence Fishburne based his performance as Perry White on CBS correspondent Ed Bradley. Ed was a friend, a mentor, and a role model for me, particularly because he worked in journalism, and he was the kind of guy who walked with kings, but he had the common touch. In a further homage to Bradley, White has an ear piercing. Amy Adams, who plays Lois Lane, is only nine years younger than Diane Lane, who plays Martha Kent. Man of Steel was distributed to theaters under the alternate title Skyrim. Clark Kent is only referred to as Superman once in the entire film. In the comics, government agents, known classically as G-Men, would refer to him in code over transmissions as the S-Man. Henry Cavill's casting was very controversial, as many questioned the appropriateness of a British actor playing an American icon like Superman, since a non-American actor hadn't portrayed the character in film before. However, defenders of the casting pointed out that Christian Bale, who was portraying Batman at the time, is Welsh. Along with multiple images and lines alluding to the savior-like nature of Superman, he tells Dr. Hamilton that he's been on Earth for 33 years, which is generally accepted as the age of Jesus when he was crucified. Okay, so I have a little IMDb nugget here. According to the comics, General Zod's first name is Drew, D-R-U. Isn't that nice, honestly? That's just kind of ridiculous to me. I can't really fucking believe it. Okay, so for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 143 minutes. This movie is rated PG-13 by the Motion Picture Association of America. 
budget 225 million, opening weekend 116.6 million, worldwide gross 668 million, IMDb rating 7.1, Rotten Tomato critic score 56%, Rotten Tomato audience score 75%. Personal rating 4.5 out of 5 stars. There's some stuff that I don't like in this movie, but I like it better every time I watch it and that's a really good quality to have in a movie. In late 2022, it was announced that among other established DCEU actors, Henry Cavill was not in the plans for DC Comics movies going forward as they intended to develop a story on a younger iteration of the character. Okay, everybody. Well, that's been a really fucking long episode that I recorded and I hope you really liked it. Obviously, send me your requests and suggestions and things like that and I will try and take them into consideration. All right, everyone. Well, have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.